this wonderful evening. <laughs> po- podcast evening. Sounded like you're going to say, and I'm Diane Sawyer. Uh, I, I'm Barbara Walters. You're Diane Sawyer. Come clearly. on. Cle- clearly. I I Katie Couric. Oh, gosh. This is obvious. <laughs> Can I be Savannah Guthrie then if you're Katie Couric? I'm going to be Savannah Guthrie. She's got great eyeshadow. I, all these women are looking the same in my brain. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. The only one I know is Barbara Walters. It's a real Dennis Quaid situation. <laughs> I will say, though, I watched The Parent Trap last weekend because I was very sad. Yeah. And I was like, Dennis Quaid in this movie, really, actually, that is Dennis Quaid. Yeah, he's a good-looking fella. He's a good-looking fella in that movie. hot. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I wish that he replaced Mel Gibson in the movie What Women Want. Yeah, of course. That's my dream. That's true. Because I don't find Mel Gibson attractive. At all. Mm -hmm. I'm very sorry. He was fine in Braveheart. Any Mellies out there. (laughs) uh, But I do not find him attractive, and I think that Dennis Quaid should replace him. Uh, So someone could do that via computer. Mm -hmm. I would appreciate it. And if... And also, he's not like anti-Semitic or like whatever it was that you yeah. know, was going on with Mel Gibson, too, because right. yeah, that yeah. was also problematic. Yeah, that's terrible. Maybe but again, if you want to listen to us talk about Mel Gibson and what women want, go back to season one. <laughs> I forgot that we watched that. There's a whole episode on it. Um, but we're not here to talk about Savannah Guthrie, Katie Couric, Diane Sawyer, or Barbara Mel Walters, Gibson. or Mel Gibson. <laughs> we're here to talk about history. On the rocks. This is... Uh, Katie? Uh, a po- Ka- I'm Katie <laughs> and I'm Allie wow. and this is a podcast where we talk about famous women from history we talk about good women and bad women fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we're not historians mm-hmm. Important no things. <laughs> we're pretty good at things we record things people tell us information on all of the social medias mm-hmm. uh and we are getting closer and closer to episode 200 i'm trying to think of we got to do something fun yeah for episode two, two. i mean i don't care about the podcast people just us me and you in general yeah, i totally <laughs> agree need to, like go have like a party um yeah okay but you're busy having your own 200 anniversary party of waking up and going to work yeah you've done it for 200 days good for you yeah um but you're busy you're making yourself special breakfast we're on in the background you can't you know, look at your phone to look up what these women look like. So we're going to tell you what they look like uh, while we're telling their story. So you can have a picture in your mind while you're scrambling those eggs. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing? What does she look like? I'm doing Dolores Herta. Herta. Okay. Huerta. I was going to say, I look like Huerta. Huerta. (laughs) And I have to get it out of my mouth first before I can say it. Okay. And she is... An American woman of Mexican descent. She was born in New Mexico. She's primarily Californian. She has a round face with dark brown hair that typically falls to about her shoulders and a little bit wavy. I don't know that I've ever seen her like smile with her teeth in a picture. Mm-hmm. She usually like has her lips together, but in interviews and stuff, she does a bit of smiling when I've seen her on television. And she's somebody who I just think is really, really cute, but also looks like they could beat me up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so that is what Dolores Huerta looks like. Perfect. <laughs> who are you doing? And what does she look like? I am doing Loretta Lynn. 
She is a petite white woman with dark, curly brown hair that typically has that country flair that we know and love. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's always just like big and fun. Obviously, like throughout the 60s and 50s and the 70s and all that, it kind of changed a little bit. But ultimately, it's always been big and country. She has a very kind square face with prominent cheekbones that sit like a little low on her face. Um, She has thin lips and a wide smile with very straight, shiny teeth, and she has very deep laugh lines. So that's why, like, when she smiles, like, she has these, like, really sharp triangle-shaped cheekbones. They're really interesting. Um, In her early years, she wore a lot of Western wear, but later on, she wore a lot of Southern-style glittery ball gowns with big, (laughs) poofy shoulders. And that's, I mean, that's... In the 2000s, she was wearing that for, like, every album cover, every concert. Uh, She has bright blue eyes that seem to sparkle while she sings, and she literally never looks happier than when she is singing her songs, no matter if it's just her and one other person or to the entire Grand Ole Opry. And that is what Loretta Lynn looks like. Yeah, I can picture her so clearly in my head. Oh, she's so cute. Yeah, she's very cute. And, like... I obviously watched a ton of just like vintage footage of her performing this week, and it was the best. She just looks so happy. Yeah. It's insane. So, anyways, um, all right. You want to know what you're drinking? I do. This drink is called Grapes of Activism, and it is lots of gin, (laughs) and then a shot of limoncello, Mm. a shot of elderflower liqueur, and you pour, shake it up, pour Mm. it over ice. Drop some grapes in there to float around, and then you top it with just like a splash of red wine. Perfect. And I also muddled grapes in the shaker ahead of time. Cheers! Cheers! Hmm. It tastes like grape juice. A little bit. It's interesting. Yeah, it's like an alcoholic grape juice, it's like church wine. Yeah, maybe it's church wine. It is a little church winey. Yeah, yeah it's that's very weird. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Um, it's very grapey. So a lot of this is from a cocktail that I found online. Like I, I changed it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking maybe instead of the limoncello, just using lemon juice. I was going to say, I think it needs a little bit more acid. Yeah. yeah would, uh, change the way it tastes a lot. Yeah. So grapes of activism. Hmm. Okay. Tell me what you know about Dolores Huerta. Ah, uh, I think she was an activist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything else. Oh, so okay. <laughs> this is going to be really fun. Okay. She is still alive. Okay. Um, 92, I believe. And uh, she is the biggest and most impactful American activist that you've never heard of. What? So, okay. I watched the documentary called Dolores and it featured Angela Davis, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, Gloria Steinem, like all these people are in this documentary talking about her. Oh my gosh. Um, And then I read a lot of information about her and her life also on the Dolores Huerta Foundation website. Okay. So let's go. Dolores was born April 10th, 1930 in a mining town in New Mexico. She was the second child of Juan and Alicia. 
Her father was born in New Mexico as well to Mexican immigrants. So she was second generation American. Okay. Later, her dad joined a migrant labor force and harvested beets in Colorado, Nebraska, and Wyoming. And when Dolores was young, she often heard her dad telling stories about working in fields and the need for organization to protect these workers who were kind of seen as lesser than in in the american west yeah quick when was her birthday again april 10th okay her, mine's april 14th oh <laughs> crazy aries so aries have so fun okay it was Sorry. same last week they were really close yeah they were like a couple days apart yeah crazy so wild mm. okay her parents divorced when she was three years old, and after that, she seldom saw her father. But her father did keep up that passion um, to help protect farm workers and was actually in the New Mexico State Legislature in uh, 1938. So we do know that about her dad, even though he didn't have a hand in raising her. Dolores's mom raised her practically on her own with her two brothers in California in a farm workers community. Her mother was known for kindness and compassion towards other others and was active in community affairs and active in the church. She was also a businesswoman because she had to make money, even mm-hmm. though it's the 1930s to like pay for her kids. So she owned a restaurant hotel Ooh. kind of, it was a 70 room hotel with a restaurant where she welcomed low wage workers, farm worker families with affordable prices, and sometimes even gave free housing to people who didn't have anywhere to stay. This greatly inspired Dolores throughout her life She said, quote, the dominant person in my life is my mother. She was a very intelligent woman and a very gentle woman. Mm. And I love that because I don't think a lot of times people talk about their moms being powerful and that's why they inspired them. And I think it's very cool to have a very gentle Mm -hmm. inspiration because Dolores is not gentle. (laughs) (laughs) She is a big force to be reckoned with. So she really did, in this area, learn to interact with her culture in a meaningful way um, because her mom was helping farm workers find housing. And a lot of these people were not citizens. They could not speak English. They were looking for a place to stay. So she says that when we talk about spiritual forces, I think that Hispanic women are more familiar with spiritual forces. We know what fasting is, and it's a part of our culture. We know what relationships are. We know what a sacrifice is. So she's really passionate about connection to her Hispanic roots um, and identifies very strongly and proudly as a Hispanic American woman. But also, she's growing up in America. Her coming of age story is during like big band swing mm-hmm. jazz. And she is fully an American teenage girl, yeah. fully an American 20 something woman. So in high school, she was relatively an active student. She was a majorette. She was a Girl Scout until she was 18. She was just a really great kid but also definitely dealt with racial discrimination you know Mm -hmm. she was a brown-skinned girl living in california one example was that a teacher accused her of stealing answers from another student and gave her an unfair grade because she had been doing so well they thought that she was cheating couldn't they couldn't imagine that she was smart enough how yeah how could she be that smart um and these types of things happened to her on a regular basis so she grew up knowing that things needed to change In California, for most Asian and Hispanic people, um, that she always refers to, like, the disadvantages that she dealt with for all the black and brown people in the United States and how it was really, really hard. 
And what we need to remember that she draws our attention to is that we're so used to talking about black slavery in the United States, but Asian people and Hispanic people were also under the threat of slavery in the Mm -hmm. 1800s, and many of them were enslaved in very, very different ways. Um, So a lot of farm workers Mm -hmm. were kind of put under like a feudal system where it's like live on my property and work at my farm, but then the money you make, you have to pay me back for housing. And a lot of um, Asian immigrant workers specifically were taken to build the Panama Canal for the United States government and never paid um, or died on the job uh, because they were digging with fucking shovels across an entire country. So um, there's just a lot of different types of slavery in our country, and she tries to point to that often. She attended college at the University of Pacific Stockton College, where she got her teaching credentials. And after teaching for a bit, she stops and enters a lifelong crusade to correct economic injustice, specifically because in school she is teaching and she realized the disadvantages of the minority students. Mm -hmm. They don't have the same textbooks. They don't have the same lessons, teachers, belongings, and they're coming to school without shoes and there's no free lunch yet. And like these kids are dying and they have to come to school. Right. I think that's like a big thing that people kind of miss when it was like, yeah, we'll just like put the schools together and like, you know, they're, they're desegregated so everything's okay and it's like yeah but there's also kids that have like other barriers like I know you talk about this all the time Mm -hmm. because like you obviously have a PhD in education but there are like other barriers that people forget about when kids are learning right I think that came up that was a big thing that I learned when the pandemic hit when like I didn't realize how many kids didn't have internet at home oh yeah yeah that was like a huge fucking problem and it's a huge barrier to like kids getting homework done because like I think they like don't do homework as much because of stuff. Yeah, they don't grade it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't grade homework because like you just can't when like not everyone has the same opportunities like at home. You know, they don't have the same home. They don't have the same home life. And I also entirely agree that like people in America are very like work, 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 go to work all day and then take your work home and work some more. And I don't think we should be doing that as a culture, taking your work home and not getting paid for it. And I don't think kids should do that either. They were just sitting down for eight hours a day. Yeah. They don't need to go home and do more. That makes no sense. No, stop it. Stop it, everyone. (laughs) Okay. Around this time after college, she married a guy named Ralph Head. Most young women were getting married, and honestly, that's just why she did it. It's the time period where you get married right Mm -hmm. when you get out of college. She got married. She had two daughters right away, Um, but it doesn't last long. She did it because it's what women did. They didn't necessarily love each other. She says they were way too young to get married. They weren't making good decisions. Um, So in the 50s, Dolores meets Fred Ross, who had similar beliefs to her. He is not like a lover or relationship of hers. They just have similar beliefs about working in the fields. So they co-found a California chapter of the CSO, the Community Service Organization, which fought for economic improvements for Latina Mexican and Chicano migrant farm workers. The idea is food is life. And these are the worst paid people in the country. Yeah. And they get us all of our food. food, They're supplying all of our food. Mm -hmm. They don't have water on the fields. And if you complain, there's a thousand other people who are going to take your job. So you have no backup. Mm -hmm. 
So due to her dedication and willingness to serve, Fred often delegated huge responsibilities to her, which everybody thought was strange. First, that they co-founded an organization. And second, that he's letting her pretty much almost be in charge. Like he's giving her all this responsibility. But he knew she was capable of delivering the message in both Spanish and English, Mm. which was very important. Mm -hmm. And she went around and promoted her agendas door to door. This is like a very early grassroots campaigning and it's important to have a person who looks like you and speaks like you to show up at your door and be interested in politics Mm -hmm. because people weren't doing that people nobody was really reaching the uh latina hispanic chicana community in california Mm -hmm. they just weren't so after a bit um she marries another guy um, because she had previously divorced the first one and they have five children. Now she's up to seven. She, oh she is gosh. like a slew, a slew of children because you also have to remember, um, that most of these Hispanic citizens are Catholic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they're, um, very opposed to any forms of birth control and things like that. And then of course you have the people who put the pressure on her, like, mm-hmm. Oh, we're just letting them breed. You know, we've talked about this all the time. Like, yeah. Oh, you're going to let all these immigrants come in here and breed and have all these babies. Right. Putting and, in this like really like disgusting light. Like right. when it is just like a culture that has many children. Right. Like we don't talk about Catholic, like Irish. Well, I guess maybe they do, but white but, Catholics <laughs> like, or like it, like, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like the people that you don't want to have kids having a lot of kids. You're like, you're oh, you, like, can, mm. you can't even support them. Why would you do that? Right. Like you're never talking about like Mitt Romney, right. like breeding, like <laughs> Sarah Palin yeah. and her <laughs> thousand children, but who <laughs> a brindle. Um, <laughs> but no, like it's hard too because everybody also uses this. And this is mostly the people who are against her to say like, well, who's taking care of these kids? If you're out here being an activist, like now they're a burden on society. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's a really difficult throughout her entire career. And I'm kind of jumping around a bit with her kids because I just didn't know where to throw the men in because they weren't that important in her life. (laughs) So this husband, they also kind of have a culture clash because he really wants her to be at home. Um, and everybody is like, please don't divorce him. Like you're comfortable. You like each other. You've got all these kids. You've got seven kids to support. She's like, no, she leaves the security of her cushy home and her marriage and cushy by cushy. I mean, middle-class her middle-class home and her marriage and takes off to go back to live in like the slum farm worker neighborhoods. She's going back. She's taking most of her children leaves some of the young ones behind to be raised like by dad and other family members. And she's going, her kids do not like this when they're kids in the documentary. A lot of them are talking and crying and like saying like, we realized our mom didn't belong to us. We lived in this community and we wanted to be rich and have all the things our friends had, but our mom was very much like, there's a greater purpose. And they're like, now you know what she did is so impressive but then it was really hard as a kid which i totally understand yeah so in 19 in the 60s she co-founds another organization called the agricultural workers association which sets up voter registration drives for people she's like rocking the vote like pre-mtv so she's pressuring the local government for neighborhood improvements and going into these neighborhoods and figuring out who is a citizen, who can register to vote, and let me help you figure out how to vote. Because also there's not Spanish ballots at this point. She's the person who oh, helps shit. this come to oh, be. That's so cool. Yeah, because California didn't have ballots for Spanish-speaking citizens. 
So there are very few Latina, Latina people, especially not women in general, who are going into the state legislature to talk to them, to protest, to lobby. And she is doing that. And she organizes a whole bunch of Spanish speaking women to come into the state legislature with pictures of their children in their World War II uniforms. And these women can't speak um, English well, and they just sit there with the picture of their kid. Like, we deserve rights. We deserve money. We deserve protection. And she was like, just sit there with the picture of your kid in that World War II uniform until they give you what you want. Yeah. And she just had them do that, which was a really smart idea. Yeah. So you may have heard of Cesar Chavez, who Mm -hmm. is a very, very famous labor organizer. Mm -hmm. Well, Cesar knows Fred. Fred, the guy she co-founded the organization with. And Fred is like, look, Cesar. Cesar Chavez. (laughs) You need to meet this girl. You need to work with this girl. She's like freaking amazing. And he's like, Cesar's like, she's a girl. She can't be that great. There's no (laughs) way she'll be that great. And um, I see interviews with Fred. He is such a supporter in this role. Interviews, Fred is on TV, and they're like, why did you pick a woman to help you run the CSO? Like, every question to him is like, why is she here? And he's like, I don't know, because they'll do the work. Like, women are here. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? What's also so frustrating, because, like, women are never asked, like, why would you pick a man to be, you know, in this position of power? Like, it's always as if, like, they... It's almost if the idea is so ludicrous that there must be some sort of strategy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, maybe there's no strategy. Maybe they were just the best person for the position. What's the secret? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember the secret? That's the book. The Hire Dolores Huerta. The uh, secret. Okay. So Caesar's like, I don't know. I don't know. But by 1962, he knows Dolores, and he is impressed by Dolores. And together, they co-found another organization, the National Farm Workers Association. And she is the only woman on the board of this organization until 2018. Oh, my gosh. Why? So there's a lot of women working (laughs) in the organization. Yeah. But she is, like, the only woman on the board for the next 50 years. Caesar also has a brother, Richard Chavez, and they end up kind of having a relationship. Now, he's married at the time that he meets her. They never get married, but they have a long-term relationship together that bloomed over time, and she has four children with him. That's right. She ends up having 11 children and doing all this work. Okay. She has 11 children. That's a lot. It is a lot of children, and she feels blessed with every single one of them, even though they were all crying on this documentary about how she kind of abandoned them as a mom. But, well, it's going to all come around. Everything's good. Okay. It all comes around. So, and I, again, I'm jumping around with the men. Around the beginning of her activism, she negotiated a contract between farmers and this wine company. In California, and it becomes the first time that farm workers ever effectively bargained with an agricultural enterprise. Wow. So she laid down the first deal where there is some sort of union organization for yeah. farmers. And it's going to turn into an actual real-life union. 
so a, a lot of people hate her because they're like she's a socialist oh my God. you know because of course <laughs> why the fbi had like a, a watch out on I'm her i'm sure yeah. they did so dolores and caesar quickly realize how great they are together and all the things they share in common so they've made this new organization but caesar's the president of this new organization and the well like the cso he's also president of that or whatever and he they won't let him organize people to demonstrate publicly the cso is like we don't want to be a part of like peaceful protests we want to like support but not do that Mm -hmm. so their other organization is about trying to get together peaceful protests to the government but they're also giving hispanic and latina people benefits and loans and helping them read income tax documents and all these things and obviously this is before she has 11 children, but she makes all these organizations before she's 25 years old. She's not even, what? she was not even 25 when she's working with Cesar Chavez and Fred making all these organizations. That's so crazy. It is. Also, she's 25 when she's a lobbyist in Sacramento and she's going in and saying they're being paid nothing. They have no rights. They're sleeping on the floor. They have wooden boxes as furnitures. They don't have clean water. They don't have bathrooms. They're working from sunrise to sunset. Most of these workers migrate from season to season to figure out where the plants are so their kids aren't getting educated and their kids are citizens. And even if they aren't, that doesn't mean they don't deserve human rights. And the women who are traveling along with their husbands are working as single women are getting sexually assaulted by landowners and they fear speaking up because they need a job so she is bringing all of this to light and you know that the senators of california are not liking this they are mad that a woman a brown woman specifically is out there talking about these things um so the farm owners expect free labor uh and they justify it by saying that they're giving these people a job (laughs) And again, it's like the feudal system. They're giving them a job, but they're not giving them anything to go with it. And they're just kind of working them to death. So she decides, let's make up this five-year plan. We're going to go around. We're going to get a lot of support. And then we're going to make a strike. Within the next five years, we're going to have all the farm workers in California go on strike. But then kind of out of left field, the Filipino workers go on strike. Oh. And she goes, okay. Well, we didn't have the five years we needed, but we're all going with them. Okay. Because she, like, to her, human rights are human rights. And she didn't just, she lived intersectionality before it was a term. So she is like, okay, the Filipino workers are on strike. We also have the same problems. Let's go with them. So Mm -hmm. everybody's going on strike. And white Americans are going Okay, let's see if you can organize all these poor people who don't speak English. And she's like, watch me. So she does. And they join them and they're walking around. And when they walk past fields, they're saying like, hermanos, vamonos, like brothers, come with us. Like, let's go. And they're getting off the fields and like walking down the street. However, (laughs) police don't hesitate to beat or run over these picket lines of brown and black poor farmers who are leaving the areas and um all the farmers are going or the farm owners are like we're willing to sit down and talk to them but we won't talk to them if they unionize which is like no you're not (laughs) then you're not yeah you're not willing to talk to them then that's a lie it's a lie but she was so important 
her and Cesar Chavez because they weren't people who flew in from Washington, D.C. to lead protests. These are people living in the community. They look like them. They speak like them. Right. And it's very powerful. Um, to be clear, <laughs> Dolores was arrested a total of 22 times for participating in nonviolent civil disobedience. Wow. And that is where our dear friend, Senator Robert Kennedy, comes in. Okay. He is going to back these people. He comes over, a Harvard white guy with a Boston accent, <laughs> and sits down with the police commissioner in, like, California, mm -hmm. and is like, how can you arrest someone if they haven't broken the law? And he says, on camera, because they're ready to violate the law. What? And Robert Kennedy goes, you, my sir, should read the Constitution. They're ready to break the ready law. Ready. That's unreal. To break the law. Real. He said that on camera. On camera. Everybody in the room went, <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> it, was like, it was like a drop the mic moment. Because, I mean, you know, and then Robert Kennedy can spin it any way he wants because he's a Harvard graduate who, like, is very well educated in the Constitution. Well, you know what? And it just, it, it, that is such a, an excuse that is still made today mm -hmm. of, like, well, I shot that, you know, it's young black kid because, you know, he looked like he had a gun. And yeah. it's like, he had a fucking bag of Skittles. He mm -hmm. did not have a gun. Mm -hmm. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And right. then it's like, that excuse is still being used today. Yeah. It's so fucked up. Yeah. And it's a, you can say it's not, but it's like fear mongering. Oh, like yeah. you are trying to get people to be scared of somebody who looks different than mm -hmm. you. So Robert Kennedy brings just so much hope to have somebody that seems so powerful and so East Coast as a senator from another state on the other side of the country mm -hmm. who's running for president no yeah. less mm -hmm. they're like oh my gosh robert kennedy like he's our hero so they're all campaigning for robert kennedy and in 1968 dolores stands beside him on the stage while he's giving his speech at the ambassador hotel in los angeles he delivers a victory statement he talks about political supporters and he mentions her by name and talks about how helpful she was in his campaign and then as we know, moments after Robert's speech, he and five other people are wounded by gunfire in front of the hotel. Oh, my God. I did. And Robert Kennedy dies a couple days later. <gasps> so he's one of, like, the Kennedy curse oh my God. people. So she was I there. I honestly, like, lose track of how all the Kennedys died. Yeah. He's, she was there at, on the stand with him, and then he, like, walks out front and gets shot. Oh, my God. After she had done all this to get him to a place where he can get elected because he's supporting her people. <gasps> That's so scary. It's terrifying. And a lot of her community becomes really cynical. They're like, well, if they're going to shoot the white guys that stand up for us, what hope do we have? Yeah. Like, what are we even going to do? But Dolores stuck to nonviolent protests. There are... So many pictures of her sitting with Coretta Scott King, just like having tea and talking like and because remember, she's protesting all during the civil rights movement. All these people know each other and they're all working for the same thing. And Dolores believed in nonviolent protests. She said hatred and racism are examples of violence and we are trying to set up a different system. So we are not going to get cynical about, you know, Senator Kennedy getting shot. We can be sad, but, like, we need to keep going. Yeah. I feel like a lot of, like, Hispanic and Asian uh, civil rights leaders get, get lost, get lost yeah. to history. Mm -hmm. You know, because obviously, like, 
we have the most uh, <laughs> issues to deal with our treatment of the black population. Yeah, but specifically on this coast. Yeah, it, that's also true, specifically yeah. on this coast. It's coastal. It is different on the West Coast. And down south in, like, Texas and New Mexico mm-hmm. and Arizona, they just have different sets of um, civil rights problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in California, as we know, there's a lot of vineyards and there are a lot of grapes. Yeah. And there's a lot of people working these grape fields. <laughs> and this is where we get the grapes of activism. So one of the big things is that she is saying we need to boycott grapes around the country. There's a lot of reasons for this. Obviously, the workers aren't getting paid. They aren't being treated well. They're not letting us have a union. But also, there are some really dangerous chemicals on the fields. And they're using these chemicals. And um, in the documentary, I saw a lot of images of um, cancer clusters, like communities, people with cancer, children born without limbs or deformed limbs. Um, some men who worked on the field had had their skin peeling off their face and like they have discoloration of their skin because of the pesticides that they're using. And one of her things in speeches is this would never happen if the workers were white. And I want to specifically say white male because only 50 years earlier we were like telling women to like lick glow in the dark craziness. Right. The Um, radium girls. Yeah. The radium Mm -hmm. girls. But yeah, this, she's like, this would not happen in the sixties to white people they're just saying like it's fine they can have these chemicals but she thinks that they're disposable right and she's also saying but the chemicals are on the food and that's going to all oh. the white people so right. they're also going to die so like let's stop this very soon because these are dangerous chemicals um and she like went around the country and is getting people to stop buying grapes hopefully and she's telling people to strike from growing grapes and she goes to Harlem places like Harlem and she goes into the stores ready to tell them to stop but they had already stopped her message had already reached a lot of the low-income areas and all of the bodegas and markets had stopped selling grapes and people stand together I think that's so interesting that she influenced a lot of like middle to low income people to say together, we are not eating grapes. And I'm sure, you know, she knew the Kings. She knew Angela Davis. She Uh knew Gloria Steinem. So all these people are saying the same thing. Don't buy grapes. Yeah. So people aren't buying grapes. And then I put a whole bunch of grapes in my drink. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know how I feel about that, but I did anyway. So, um, Men aren't listening to her. They're being rude about her opinion. Every time she's interviewed, they're like, but what about your kids? But what about oh this? God. What about all the breeding? And then Ronald Reagan, as we know, governor of California, um, calls the great boycott blackmail. He said they're blackmailing us. The most exploited workers in the country are not blackmailing you, sir. <laughs> I can't believe that. That is unreal. Okay, It's a peaceful protest. You're allowed to do that. That is yeah. like fully covered by the constitution in the first amendment no less so it isn't just them against the farm owners it's them against the government that the farm owners funded Mm -hmm. and that's why this is so hard because the government decides to buy a whole bunch of grapes and send them to the troops in vietnam to get back what a sneaky 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 to get back at them okay so this great boycott going okay. <laughs> She's advocating. Everything's happening. It ends up getting a three-year bargain. There's no union yet, but the workers and the great 
field vineyard owners have this three-year bargain that's going to last till 1970s. In her travels to New York City, like I said, she ran into Gloria Steinem. And Gloria Steinem in the documentary is like, well, I was scared of her at first. (laughs) (laughs) Because one of the things that Gloria was worried about is like, this is such a powerful activist woman, but she's also Catholic. And I know she's not going to be on for the birth control thing. And she's not going to be the abortion thing. So they meet. And it it takes a while, but the two work out their differences. And eventually, Dolores Huerta says, I realize that pro-choice does not mean pro-abortion. It means that women, just like me, get to choose to have 11 kids or get to choose to not have 11 kids because they have contraception. It's not about allowing women to have abortions. It's Mm -hmm. about allowing women to choose how they want their life to be. And from that point forward, Dolores Huerta becomes a dedicated female rights activist she like became so powerful (laughs) after meeting with gloria and angela davis and like it's very great so these are some of the things that her activism did she helped with a bill to permit spanish-speaking people to take the california driver's exam in spanish Ah. she helped legislation that repealed previous hurtful laws surrounding farming families she helped with legislation that extended federal programs to california farm workers and she also helped get passed the california agricultural labor relations act which established the rights of farm workers in the state and it's the first in u.s history rights of farm workers in an entire state so they're protesting they're peaceful protesting but during these protests people are getting killed by the police and no one is ever arrested during these protests or because of these and specifically george hw bush was giving a speech at the saint francis hotel in union square and dolores was one of the people this is september 1988 i am two years old and like getting it She's there. She is severely beaten by a police officer during a peaceful protest. There's a baton. She gets beaten. The injuries in her torso result in several broken ribs, requiring removal of her spleen in emergency surgery. Oh, my God. And the beating was caught on videotape. And people around the country freak out they say police officers should not be abusing our grandmothers like this is insane um she's laying in her hospital bed and her friend goes is there anything like that you need that you want and she goes yeah boycott safeway (laughs) (laughs) because they're still selling grapes oh my gosh so what i learned about dolores is that she felt guilty doing anything for herself any money was donated to the cause. Any time, the cause. Nothing was about her ever. She did end up lose, uh, winning a large judgment against the San Francisco Police Department, and they had to reform their police system be- and crowd protection because of what happened to her. Um, like I said, she was bedridden for several months, which is really, really hard for someone who is so active. Mm-hmm. But all 11 of her children from three different fathers came to support her. And they openly forgave her as adults. And they, she said, after all the times I left them, they never left me alone for one day when I was in that bed. <laughs> Which is so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Following a lengthy recovery, recovery, Dolores took a leave of absence with all of this and the union. And again, she's kind of pushing forward with women's rights 
the reason for that is when Cesar Chavez died in 2011, they had the choice to pick a new president. And again, she was on the board. Mm -hmm. She's the front runner in all of this. Been there forever. Uh (laughs) They decide to pick a man instead of her. And she came out and openly resigned from the organization. So then she traverses the country for two years. And these are her people, the people that she has worked for for all these years. They're just and they won't even listen to her. They're like giving her the cold shoulder out of the organization. She traverses the country for two years working for the feminist majority feminization, which is like a 50 50 power legalization. Um, She works as national chair of the 21st century party, which in 1992, the goal was that all of their candidates are 50% women, the officers in the organization, 50% women, all of that. But after she kind of gets out of this, um, the farm workers organization, she wins an award that gives her a no strings attached $100,000. She can retire and do whatever she wants. She can take the money. It's hers forever. But instead... (laughs) She decides to create the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Her daughter, currently Camila Chavez, is the executive director, her youngest daughter. And the Dolores Foundation is a community benefit organization that gives way to grassroots level developing national leaders. It creates leadership opportunities for people, leadership development, civil engagement. It teaches people about advocacy for health, environment, education, youth, and economic development. The organization is also intersectional. It talks about women's rights, LGBTQ rights, immigrant rights, labor rights, and civil rights all together. Also, it works with kids. It teaches them how to vote, how to petition, how to sign signatures. They have a youth voting campaign. They reach millions and millions of black and brown kids around this country, and they go into schools and teach about PBIS strategies, which is positive behavior intervention strategies, which is something that we do in school now. Instead of spending all your attention on the one kid causing a problem, you go around the room and say, thank you for having your notebook out, so-and-so. Thank you for doing what I asked you to do because it makes other kids kind of go, what did they do to get praise? So you kind of change the way the way you do it. She has a total of 15 honorary doctorates. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama, and he apologized in the speech for stealing her saying, yes, we can, because it was hers first, except it was in Spanish. And he goes, she didn't give me a hard time, which was nice of her. Um, she, Miss Magazine, made her one of the most important women in the 1990s. She was given uh, the highest medal of honor from Mexico. So a foreign country. Uh, She got the Eleanor Roosevelt award. She's in the 100 most important women. She got the Margaret Sanger Maggie award and um, California made April 10th Dolores Huerta day. Now there is a problem because Dolores is currently 92 years old and nobody knows who she is. But part of that is not our fault. Most recently, she travels from university to university talking to students openly about what happened to her. And in her life, there's a lot of bad things that happened to her. But most recently, she was recorded saying Republicans hate Latinos. And that is the soundbite that Fox News decided to pick up. So from there, 
the State Board of Education in Texas and Arizona has removed Dolores Huerta from their curriculum. And in fact, they want to get rid of all of ethnic studies together because of that. And on TV, you know we're knee-deep in sexism and racism because they called her either A, Cesar Chavez's sidekick, and another guy said, I've never even heard of this woman before. But in fact, it is so very important for young Latino girls to see her in their curriculum, to see statues of her, and to see books about her because she is American history just as much as Malcolm X, just as much as Martin Luther King, just as much as Angela Davis and Gloria Steinem. She's American history, and they're purposely cutting her because she insulted Republicans. So that's why we've never heard of her. People are trying to put her down because she is a socialist. So... She's out of the books. so frustrating. Yeah, that's her story. She's 92. She's got 11 kids. They all love her. Most of them work in her foundations. I highly suggest the documentary. It's really touching. Sounds great. But. God, that's so annoying. It's a down note to to end on. You know what? It is uh, very disheartening how easily people can be removed from history. We talk about that a lot on this show. But, like, someone who has done so much just to be able to they literally just picked her out took her out of the textbooks gone gone and nobody knows about her i literally had never heard of her before yeah okay she's too much too much woman too Too much much not a white woman Mm -hmm. and everybody said sorry too unionizing we all know the government gets weird about unions it's i mean she did all the things she checks all the wrong boxes yeah so Sorry, Dolores. We all know who you are. I hope you're having a good night wherever you are in California. All right. Well, we need to talk about another Aries. (laughs) We're going to make another cocktail, and we'll be right back. Right back. Okay, so we're going to learn about uh, Loretta Lynn now. Yes. Country music legend, Loretta, Loretta Lynn. Lynn. So uh, do you want to know what you're drinking in honor of this fucking awesome woman? I do. It looks like uh, um, Moscow something. Yes. So I based this cocktail off of a Kentucky mule. So there's a Moscow mule. And a Kentucky And then there's a Kentucky mule. Uh, but it's a little bit different. So this is called Honky Tonk Angel. Mm. <laughs> of course it is. Two ounces of bourbon. I specifically used Kentucky bourbon because that's where she's from. And also it's what I had by accident. <laughs> um, an ounce of apple brandy. Uh, a little bit of lime juice. Not a whole ton. Brown sugar. And then you also put um, sage in the shaker when you shake it up. So you shake that all up together. You pour it into a glass and then you top it with ginger beer. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's great. Mm. I mean, any mule is so good. Mules are so good. And it feels like I have a goblet. Mm -hmm. I have a full goblet of drink. It's going to coast me through this story. Because, of course, I served it in the traditional copper mug. Right. You have to. It it colds it up. Yes, it does. Or colds it down. I don't know. It looks so good. All right. What do you know about Loretta Lynn? I know that she is a country singer. I know that she has a ton of country singer awards, and she has that song about being a woman. <laughs> and that's what I know about Loretta Lynn. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and also, okay, 
Who is the country singer with the blonde hair from our era who was a Christian? Miranda Lambert? No. Uh, Cheryl Leanne Rhymes. Oh, Leanne Rhymes. In my head, I feel like Leanne Rhymes is a weird offshoot of Loretta Lynn. Okay. It's not correct. Yeah, not correct. Uh, just... She wasn't even in any, any of the documentaries. And I'm sure me, there it wasn't. were a lot of modern country think, stars in the I documentaries. I don't think they know anything about each other. <laughs> I don't think the girl I just talked about is even real anymore. Let me tell you. <laughs> I loved watching these documentaries. Number one, because Reba McIntyre was in every single one. Jesus. I realized through this that I'm a survivor. I unironically love her. (laughs) (laughs) I've always like been like, yeah, I love Reba McIntyre, like ironically, because I watched her TV show every like day growing up. She's great and grand. Bananas. And she was in the fucking little rascals movie. She's AJ Fergus Un. She's so good. I didn't (laughs) know that. A. B you can't not like Reba McIntyre. Also, my favorite meme ever is it's like she has a line of lipsticks, but she has no upper lip when you really look at her. And it's like almost like Reba McIntyre is launching a lip care empire with one lip. Kylie Jenner is shook. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I love Reba McIntyre, and now I love Loretta Lynn. Okay, good. Well, Reba's where it's at. God, I love her. Okay, so I got this information from mm. mainly a CMT country music channel, television, whatever it is, uh, behind the music documentary. Of course, those are great. They're so good. Uh, Wikipedia and PBS American Masters. So CMT did their thing about her in like 2003, but then that literally left like two decades where she was doing a lot of shit. So I was really grateful for the PBS American Masters one. Okay, good. Okay. Loretta Webb was born in Butcher Holler, Kentucky, on April 14th, 1932. What? They are so close in age. Damn. <laughs> that is That is crazy. Because she was born in 1930, right, Dolores? Yes. Unreal. She was... Also, bu- Butcher Webb? What? No, Butcher Holler. Oh, what a Her, town name. Butcher Holler. I wish. I Stars wish. Hollow. Stars. <laughs> well, it's funny hollow. because sometimes it's spelt hollow, Holler. But sometimes it's spelled holler, but everybody pronounces it holler. So butcher holler. She was the oldest daughter and second child born to Clara Marie and Melvin Theodore, uh, a.k.a. Ted Webb. Oh. In all, the couple had eight children. Her father, Ted, was a gentle and kind coal miner and farmer who loved his family, especially his daughter, Loretta. Stop! Her dad was a coal miner. She lived in a coal mining town. Can you... I know. Trust me. We did not plan this because technically I had someone else. Twice. You put Althea Gibson twice on on the list by accident. So I was like, this is a great opportunity to do Loretta Lynn because I don't know anything about her. Unreal that we're doing this. Okay. (laughs) Okay. The family lived in poverty in a one-room house, a one-room cabin in rural Kentucky with no electricity, no running water, or indoor plumbing. Okay, Blinken. Mm-hmm. As she says in her song, we were poor, but we had love. That's the one thing daddy made sure of. He shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar. She fucking loved her dad. He was just like, 
a very kind, both of her parents, kind, gentle people. Her father could pick up any instrument and play it. Loretta's mother could sing and dance so beautifully. And Loretta grew up singing gospel songs and Appalachian Mount or Appalachian, however you want to pronounce it, uh, mountain folk songs. Like she's in the Algonquin baby. This is a very specific culture that I find fascinating. She even like did a whole album of just Appalachian folk songs like a couple of years ago. I was in that like Tennessee region two summers ago and I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's like one of those things like when you're there and even sometimes when I'm like researching a person, I'm like, I kind of want to like change my entire culture now. (laughs) It's very unique and it's intense. And I think it's very interesting. Like the, yeah, the Appalachian culture is very cool. I always picture Snow White dancing with the seven dwarves yes, in the cottage when I think about <laughs> Appalachian <laughs> culture. Exactly right. <laughs> so when she was 15 years old, she met a boy named Oliver Vanetta Lynn. He had many nicknames, name. including Doolittle, Doo, and Mooney. Uh, but Loretta always, you mean he's Lupin always called him do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to follow suit and refer to him as do. Okay. Cute. Um, I was going to do Mooney, but only like one person ever called him Mooney and I'll, because I like that nickname better, but whatever. <laughs> um, he was 21 years old and had just finished up a stint in the army okay. and he bought Loretta's pie at a local school fundraiser. <gasps> Now, Dew had a reputation around town for being a drunk and a womanizer, so Loretta's parents told her that under no circumstances are you to see that boy again. Mm, number so, one way. <laughs> a month later, she married him. Oh! One month later. That's fun. <laughs> Some sources say that she was 13 years old, and, like, she says this a lot, that she was 13. Uh, but the official records show that she was indeed 15, not that that's much better, but, you know, she's still a very young girl. And, like, maybe she, like, literally didn't know how old she was. I wouldn't, like, be surprised if that was the case. There was a lot of moonshine around her birthday. <laughs> yes. And also, it's like, you know, they're out in a one-room cabin in the rural Appalachian Mountains. Who's like, counting? Who's counting? <laughs> so, anyways, oh. Loretta's parents were devastated. And her father went to do. And he made him promise two things to him. He goes, never lay a hand on my daughter, never hit her, Mm. and two, don't take her far away so we can't see her. Both promises were broken very quickly into the marriage. No! The first one was broken within 24 hours of the marriage. Loretta is in the house. They're just married, and, you know, she said, ah, shut the damn door, you whore. (gasps) She was like, Oh, it's like, you know, it's, it rhymes. It's funny. You know, I heard the boys say it in school. She literally just picked up the word whore in school and didn't know what it meant. I mean, I feel like that's pretty common. Yeah. Kids pick up words a lot. They don't because know Because she's mean. a kid. Yeah. To be clear. She's a child. And Dew obviously knew what that word meant. And he took Loretta, put her over his lap and spanked her as if she were a child, which kind of was. Like Fifty Shades of Grey spanked her or like... No, oh. like reprimanding as if like she were his daughter spanked her. That's gross. And he's what, like 21? He's 21. That's weird. Okay. 
And apparently their wedding night was also not ideal because Loretta didn't know what sex was. So she was pretty surprised at what do wanted to do that night. (laughs) So things started off a little rough for the young couple. And within five months of the wedding, do had taken up with another woman and sent her home to her parents. Loretta was confused. She was embarrassed and she was four months pregnant. And like many of our grandmothers before us, including mine, she wasn't 100% sure how it happened. How she got pregnant. But a few months later, he came back for her. They got back together. And then he broke his second promise. He moved the now seven-month pregnant Loretta all the way to Washington State from Kentucky. It's so rainy there. So rainy. So far away. I hear. Uh, but he heard that there were logging jobs out there, so he figured that was a, a place where he could find steady work. She was just 16 years old when her first child was born, and she hoped that with the new baby and the move to the Northwest, they could settle down and have a marriage just like her parents. Loretta didn't know that she had to like look out for bad guys because her father was such a good guy, which is so fucking sad and she was like yeah like once we settle down like it'll be just like mom and dad because her house was so nice growing calm and Mm -hmm. kind but also that's on your parents to teach you that like and i know there's no like sex ed in school at this time Mm -hmm. obviously or school at all really but like it is on the people around you to teach you about the dangers of men like you can't just throw girls into the wild right well and i think that that's And it's, again, it's, like, I think what her father was trying to do when he was, like, don't talk to that boy. (laughs) But, like, it's almost a a disadvantage to her that she was never shown, like, what men can be like, you know. Where where do all the boys get this information? I don't know. I'm curious. Is there a manual to speak of? Probably. Okay. Uh, but do kept drinking. He kept cheating on Loretta and he would leave her home alone for weeks at a time while continuously getting her pregnant. In just a few short years, Loretta would have four children and without a husband consistently home, Loretta was destitute and often very hungry. She said that once they were so desperate that for two weeks, all they ate were dandelions. Oh my gosh. But Loretta is a sur- survivor, uh, and she would become... Thank God for Reba. She was an adept hunter and forager, so she did make ends meet in any way that she could. She could hunt? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. she She's could from hunt. Kentucky. She's from Kentucky. Got she it. can hunt. Her daddy taught her. All of Kentucky. Um, <laughs> Everybody in Kentucky can hunt. Prove me wrong. And it sucks because she would, like, need dude to come home to help with the kids and help her put food on the table. But when he did come home, he would become violent with her and hit her. And it was kind of like, I need you to be home, but I also don't like you to be home. But here's the thing. Loretta wasn't a 15-year-old bride anymore. She was becoming more independent. And she likes to say, he didn't smack me without getting two smacks back. She was like, I'm fighting back now. This is bullshit. One time she hit him so hard she knocked his front teeth out. Good. (laughs) Yeah, good. He deserved it, obviously. (laughs) With a frying pan, no less? (laughs) I think just with her fists. How? Really? Yeah. You could punch somebody and knock their teeth out? She has a song called Fist City. I think this is... (laughs) Whoa, I've never... (laughs) Dude, Loretta is a scrappy fucking woman. I've never hit somebody like that. I don't know. I know like, I threw a chair at Casey once. I've hit people, <laughs> but I've never hit them to knock their teeth no, out. No, not to knock their teeth out. 
Um, and this is like the weird thing about their relationship. They fought so hard. He was such a dick sometimes, but they loved each other a lot. And do did believe in her and he respected her in this weird way. Like he was her champion and yet he was the person that was like pulling her down all the time. It's, I hate him. <laughs> I know. I, hate I know. Him. I can't, I can't with that. So he thought that she had a beautiful voice cause she was always singing around the house. So in 1953, he gave Loretta a present. It was a harmony guitar that cost $17 or around 180 in today's money. Wow. Very kind. Very kind. She didn't know how to play, so she, she taught herself how to play the guitar Whoa. alone in a cabin in Washington State. With no YouTube. With no YouTube. <laughs> and she would put a lot of the emotions that she was feeling about her marriage and her kids and her life into these just like little songs that she would play, which helped a lot during her extremely volatile marriage. So this all goes on for a few years, and Loretta's really getting lonely. She missed her family, especially her dad. And then one night, she wakes up crying. She had a nightmare that something happened to her father. And she tells Du, she's like, something happened to daddy. We need to find a, a phone. I need to call home. Something happened to him. And he's like, you just had a bad dream. Like, don't worry about it. And sure enough, the next morning, she called home. And her sister-in-law back home said that her father had died. So she knew. She knew. <gasps> In a dream, he visited her. Crazy. Her father had been suffering from black lung for some time now due to his work in the coal mines. Um, but he passed away from a stroke in 1959 at the age of 52. Loretta was devastated. But thankfully, because of this guitar and her singing, she had an outlet. She put her grief into her music and was writing and playing even more than before. So later on in 1959, Dude told her, he goes, you know what? You can sing better than anyone else at the bar that I hang out in every night when I'm not taking care of the kids with you. <laughs> uh, and he goes, you, you know what? He goes, I'm going to tell them to put you on stage. She was nervous and shy, but as soon as she got out on that stage in this little bar in Washington, in Blaine, Washington, she sang, you are my sunshine. Cause it was the only song that like she knew that like the band who was playing might know. And people immediately understood how talented she was. So the manager of the bar was like, yeah, if you can sing like that every night, he goes, I'll pay you $12. So she starts getting paid $12 every night. And that's how it all started. Soon she starts a band with her brother. It's called Loretta's Trailblazers. And they start Wait, playing. Wait, her brother's in Kentucky? No, her brother moved out there to be with her. Oh, got it. So, yeah, eventually. So he, because I think, like, she was really missing family. And her brother was like, I can do logging jobs. Like, that sounds good. So he eventually did move out there with them. Um, so she starts playing at local music halls, but most often at this bar called Bill's Tavern. And within a few months, Loretta's confidence is up. And Mooney's like, you know what? I think you can do more. So he signed her and the band up for a competition on a local TV show in Tacoma, Washington, hosted by country singer Buck Owens. She goes on the show. Uh, I think she, like, won, like, a watch or something. <laughs> but her performance was seen by, uh, by a Canadian man named Norm Burley. He had just lost his wife 
And her song, Whispering Sea, touched him so much that he thought, this girl has got to have a record deal. <gasps> he owns a, a lumber business. Canadian record deal? Nope. He owns a lumber business. He does not own a record company. Oh. But he goes, you know what? I'm going to start a little record company for Loretta called Zero Records. <laughs> Zero. Because they had made zero records up until this point. <laughs> so in February 1960, uh, they go down to Los Angeles and he's like, I can afford to record two of your songs, Whispering Sea and I'm a Honky Tonk Girl. So she had this tiny little record with two songs on it. And in it's the a spring, single practically. Yeah. It's a double. It's a double. <laughs> so in the spring of 1960, Loretta and Dew started driving down the West Coast to see if people would play her songs on the radio. They stopped at every radio station they passed by and they convinced them to play her record. Sometimes she would sit in the radio station for four or five hours until they agreed to play her songs. Not only did they play her songs, but they loved them and they were completely charmed by Loretta. And it worked. Because once they played her songs, then people would call in and request them again. And now her songs are playing all the time. And soon she gets a call saying, your song Honky Tonk Girl is number 14 on the country billboard charts. She goes, I don't know what a billboard chart is, but it sounds like a good thing. She'd never, she doesn't <laughs> she never once. No. She, no. she went straight from Appalachia to Washington yeah. State. There's not really not any a lot of room in for billboards. <laughs> There's no billboards there. So by August, she and Mooney were headed to Nashville, dropping the kids off with family in Indiana. So back to Tennessee, baby. Mm -hmm. So close. So close. One of her first stops was the Ernest Tubb record shop. Uh, midnight jamboree she was so tiny that they had to get some milk crates for her to stand up on so she could play her songs but people loved her and one person in particular really loved her patsy klein was Ooh. in the hospital that night after a car accident and she's listening to the Ernest Tubb record shop midnight jamboree on the radio of course as you would of course as you would and she was blown away she said to her husband Go get that Loretta Lynn and bring her right to me. Whatever. I'm doing a terrible country That's accent. exactly what Patsy Klein sounds That's like. That's exactly what she That's sounds it. like. That's um, it. So I have two Aunt Patsy's. <laughs> so her, Patsy Klein's husband, went into the streets of Nashville to find this little girl named Loretta Lynn. And he was like, Patsy Klein would very much like to meet you in her hospital room. Mm. And she's like, Patsy Klein's my absolute hero. Like, this is a dream come true. She goes to the hospital, and Patsy becomes not only her mentor, eventually teaching her how to perform on stage, how to dress, how to wear makeup, how to wear high heels, but also how to, like, navigate the industry a bit. Uh, and they also became best friends. Like, they were so close for years. Like, there's, like, a whole thing, like, a whole, like, book about, like, Patsy and Loretta's friendship. Like, it was so deep and strong. Uh, so that's great. Patsy Klein all on board the Loretta train. And then she also meets the Wilburn brothers in Nashville. They are very big in the country music industry at the time. And then when they, when they heard Loretta, one of them went home to his wife and he said, honey, we found the female Hank Williams, which Hank Williams is like a huge fucking country deal. Um, so they 
signed her to their songwriting publishing company and they start cutting demo records with her and they pursued getting Loretta to play the Grand Ole Opry. And on October 15th, that's like two days from now. Wait, tomorrow. That's That's tomorrow. tomorrow, October 15th, 1960. Loretta Lynn made her Grand Ole Opry debut and there she played for 21 weekends in a row also while touring around uh, Nashville with the Wilburn Brothers. She was soon making a name for herself and the Wilburn Brothers uh, were now set on helping her get a recording contract with Decca Records. And they did it in kind of a slick way. So this producer wanted one of her songs for Brenda Lee, but he didn't want to sign Loretta. He goes, we have too many girls. I don't need another girl singer. Uh, and she sounds just like Kitty Wells. So, like, why would I do that to myself? Well, so, I don't even know who Kitty Wells is. Yeah, she was also a very pioneering country music singer. Sorry, baby. Um, sorry, Kitty. <laughs> You're gone. But the Wilbur brothers put their foot down and they said, if you don't sign Loretta, you don't get the song. So he goes, fine. So by so she gets signed to Decca Records, and in 1963, she releases her first album called Loretta Lynn Sings. By the end of the year, it was the number one country record. And by 1964, she was named Billboard's top female vocalist. Mm. She was also extremely, extremely popular on the Wilburn Brothers TV show. This was kind of like a Dolly Parton, Porter Wagner situation. So now we're in the 60s. And another big thing, or really two big things, happened in 1964. Loretta finds out that she is pregnant with twins. Ugh, And gross. she now gives birth to two more children, make, bringing her total to six. Now, let me be clear. I said gross not because Loretta's gross, but no. because I have two separate not twin children that I don't want to be twins. No. Having twins is so hard. I've seen it hurt the best of us. The, it's so hard. There are some powerful women in my life that I've watched have twins. I've There are three very powerful women in my life who have twins, and uh, they are not the same now no. that they were before. No, no. <laughs> it is. It's a changer. Yeah. Game changer. So this was really hard for Loretta. She was already feeling guilty about not totally being there for her four other children. And now she has two more and an insane touring recording and TV schedule. But she continued to choose choose her career over her family. And nine years, nine years, nine days, I'm sorry, nine days after giving birth to twins, she was in Germany on tour. And I want to say, too, like, I'm saying, like, choosing career over family as, like, and I don't mean that in a negative sense because, like, men do it all the time and nobody says fucking shit about it. So, like, this is just a thing that she is specifically specifically criticized for. Um, And so the newborn twins stayed in Nashville with a family who had moved there by the time. Because, again, she has seven siblings. So, like, there were a lot of (laughs) web siblings that were willing to help out. Um, But this was really difficult for Loretta. And she said once that if she had known the toll that the, this life of fame and stardom had taken on her family, she would have never picked up the guitar and started singing. I don't know that that's true. I don't believe that. I don't believe it either. No, she loves her because she was also being like abused by her husband. And now her husband loves her because she's a moneymaker. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just so crazy. It's 
so crazy. No, I do agree that fame is a toll on your life, but I think any choice you make is a toll on your life, and you have to decide which one you want. And this is the better one for her. Exactly. <laughs> and but she also did have to give and up time for the longevity her of her family too. Yeah. Because like, I mean, yeah. her estate is worth like sixty-five million dollars. Right. And I mean, money can't replace love, but it helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, da, 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 da. okay. So she goes to Germany, but after this Germany tour, do decided that he should probably stay back and be with the kids. He was like, this touring is like, not quite for me. He goes, it's fun. It's cool. I love being with you, but also like, this is very difficult. So do's going to be do daddy now. Do daddy. Do diligence daddy. Really? So I don't picture this for him. Where's his change of heart? Did he like like, go pray or something? Where is he? No, because he's also doing ridiculous. Okay. He's a shithead. He just is like not meditating and like just not. Okay. I don't understand. Like, cause all of a sudden there's like a shift in him. I don't get. He is a person who is like two people in one okay. like people are like oh he was the best he was loretta's biggest support but it's like yeah but he's also fucking hitting on her and cheating on her all the time mm. hitting did i say hitting on her i meant yeah. just hitting her hitting just her. in general hitting her um but anyway so he's tired of being on the road so he wants to be home with the kids so that's what he did uh but they weren't going back to a shack this time loretta was making enough money to buy an entire ranch for her family to live and thrive on ranch about it in hurricane mills tennessee Mm. she called it her hillbilly dream and like dollywood it has become a tourist attraction for her fans over a million people each year come to the ranch to see her home and the recreation of her butcher holler cabin and they okay but how many roller coasters are there (laughs) no roller coasters but they did build a dude ranch and uh they built a whole campground with these really nice cabins that are named after all of her songs for her fans to stay in which is really that's cute um and they even built a, a replica coal mine so people could like and like the film crew in the PBS documentary went into this and it is not like a brightly lit, like cool coat. Like it is like, I was like, that it looks suffocating. It's like send the like, canary in first situation. Yes. Got it. Um, but this whole ranch was kind of a celebration of the hard work of blue collar people. You know, she was like, I'm not trying to pretend that I didn't come from this rural fucking place with all these people who worked in the coal mines and died of black lung. She goes, this is it. I'm not trying to hide it. And her kids and grandkids still all work on this ranch to this day. Her daughter, Patsy, named after Patsy Klein. This is one of the twins. There are Patsy and Peggy, which are your mom and aunt. Which is so crazy. Shut <laughs> up. Isn't that bananas? I can't believe that. Patsy and Peggy, that's Patsy my whole life. Um, but her daughter Patsy talked in the documentary about how her parents really struck the right balance of teaching them how to do things like take care of the animals and work on tractors and grow vegetables and can the vegetables. Like she was like, oh yeah. She goes, we're all like trained mechanics. She was like, we can work on cars. We can work on tractors. We can work on backhoes, like whatever you need us to do. Because even though they were millionaires, Loretta always said, you still need to know how to work. 
She goes, I want to still be able to be okay and for all my kids to be okay, even if all this money goes away. She goes, I've been poor before and I can be poor again. You haven't, though. Who? Like the, her kids. Her, she's saying to her kids, like, you haven't been poor. Yeah. So be poor. Yeah. So she, like, I just, I like that, like, when I was looking at, like, her kids being interviewed and stuff, like, they were like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we come back, we take care of all these things. Like, they're like, we're not afraid of, like, doing, like, we do hard work all the time. She goes, and then the money is there for us to do things that maybe we couldn't have done if we were just farmers. So her family's pretty cool. Um, but the problem with this amazing home and ranch was that she was never there, which made her really sad. Like Patsy was talking about like this one time where like she was on tour and then she came home and she's like, I want to make my kids a home cooked dinner. And she like fell on the floor crying because she was like, I've looked for an hour in this kitchen and I can't find the pans. She goes, I don't live here. I don't know where the pans are in my fucking kitchen. And she, and like the kids were just like, we'll help you find it. Like, don't worry. Like her kids really did love her, but they were like, it was hard. Like she was never here. Like she, like, I think you said it best. Like they're like, she didn't belong to us. She belonged to her fans. And that was really difficult for the kids and for her. It's weird because it it doesn't happen with dads no. in the same way. No. Like dads can come home and they don't have that same like weight of guilt of not understanding the household because you are supposed to know the household and I think women felt that very honestly during COVID yeah. that there was there is no break. There is no break for women. We're doing the double, the double work Mm -hmm. and it's weird. Yeah. And it sucks. It's weird. And uh, like unacknowledged it's, it's become more acknowledged, but it is still a very unpaid labor. It's unpaid labor. Yeah. Yeah. Many women in this country just do unpaid labor. Yeah. Um, and even though Mooney was being uh, a better father, a more present uh, figure in his kids' lives, uh, he was still being the same old husband, drinking too much and cheating frequently on Loretta. And then there was another alcoholic affecting Loretta's life. One of the Wilbur brothers, Doyle, was suffering from alcoholism and he was self-destructing. Mm. The other brother, Teddy, didn't want to deal with it anymore, so he moved to California, which left Loretta with Doyle. And Loretta soon realized that this was not working. Like, these guys were tanking her career. So she goes, you know what? Rather than doing that, she goes, you know, I don't care that, like, I'm super close with them. I consider them brothers. She goes, I'm leaving your, you know, songwriting publishing company. I'm leaving this whatever, like, I need to go. So they turned right around and sued her for $5 million for breach of contract. Shit. Which we will get to more later because this wouldn't be settled for years. But for now, she was out from under their thumb and she finally had a little bit more control over her career. So now she's also starting to release songs that are directly linked to her own life. (laughs) She's doing a Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Or Taylor Swift does a her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' With Lovin' On Your Mind is a song that says it all in the title, <laughs> which I love. It's like, 
I just love that idea of like, as she says, she goes that kind of like, she's basically saying this song, that kind of sex where like you're fucking wasted and just wanting to like paw at me. She goes, I'm not into that, which is interesting because she's not saying like, I don't like sex. She's saying, I don't like sex like this. Like this isn't okay. Give me, give me different sex. Exactly. Um, and then there was the song, you ain't woman enough to take my man. That's mine. That's her Jolene. Yeah. That's <laughs> the one I brought up at the beginning. Yeah. The woman song. Oh, it's such a good song. She also had another Jolene type of song called fist city, basically telling this other woman, like, if you don't want to go to fist city, take a detour around my town. <laughs> Cause it's all about like, you know, this woman who is talking about how she's going to steal away Loretta's man and she says in the song, she goes, oh, my husband cheats on me, but he would never leave me for you. Like, she's, she goes, he'll play around with some kitty, but he's not going to leave me for you. All right. Like, this <laughs> is it, guys. We're talking about cheating during Patreon. It's going to get heated. Okay. Are you ready? I just I'm, wrote that down. Don't oh, know if I'm ready, but we'll I'm do it. I'm certainly not ready. I never um, <laughs> it's going to be hard to talk about. So cheating is a common theme in a lot of country music. And it's funny because one of the guys asked Reba McIntyre, he goes, why is cheating such a big theme of country music? And she goes, because people cheat. <laughs> like, she was like, I don't know what you want me to say. She was like, it just happens. But we, we talk about it like very openly. <laughs> but people credit Loretta with writing some pretty radical songs about what it was like to be a woman, especially one with an alcoholic cheating husband. So she wasn't just writing these songs and people are like, oh, but like, you know, like Dolly Parton wrote Jolene, but her husband never cheated on her. That we know. That we know of. But, you know, that wasn't a public thing. Like Loretta Lynn would sing these songs and like if she were on TV, she'd like do this whole set dressing and she would have her real husband at a table kissing other women and be singing to those women. Like, she was just very aware of this whole situation and, like, putting it out there. Like, yeah, my husband cheats on me and it fucking sucks, but at least he's married to me and he's not leaving me. Which and is he's, like a, I mean, it's wild because she was also 15 when she married him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she also covered a song at that point, call it an open marriage, not cheating. Yeah. Like if you're both like understanding that shit. Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk about this other song that she did because I think this is a song that she felt very connected to, but she didn't write it. And it's my personal favorite of the songs that I've been listening to this week. And it's called the Harper Valley PTA. Mm. Have you ever heard this song? No. This song is originally uh, sung by Jeannie C. Riley and it's all about a single mother who gets a letter. <laughs> mm -hmm. She gets a letter from the parent teacher association and they say your dresses that you wear to pick up your daughter at school, like are too short. Like how dare you bring up your daughter in that kind of household? Ugh. So in the song, she goes to the PTA meeting in a mini skirt and she gets up with a microphone and she starts airing out everybody's shit. She's like, well, you are an alcoholic and like your husband's cheating on you. Your husband keeps hitting on me. And like she is just pointing around the room and she's like, everybody has their shit and you're calling me out. And she calls them Harper Valley hypocrites. And it yeah. is such a good song. I just love it. So that is one like it is very catchy, too. 
<laughs> so Loretta's super popular. She starts a very strong relationship or partner. I'll say partnership, partnership. with Mr. Conway Twitty. They did not <gasps> have a relationship. But yeah, the Mr. Conway Twitty. The? <laughs> the Conway Twitty? Yeah. She's winning all sorts of awards for her music. And then in 1972, she became the first woman to win Country Music Entertainer of the Year. This is basically like the best picture Oscar of oh, country yeah. music. It's the best one. And only men had won it so far. So this was a huge deal, which is crazy considering they're like Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, Patsy Cline, Kitty Wells, all these people have been in the industry. Mm. Like, and she's the first wo- woman to win this award. Ridiculous. That's insane. But she wasn't always so popular. <laughs> We said that she liked to write songs about what it was like to be a woman. And some people didn't want to hear about certain aspects of being a woman in the 70s. The first song that she wrote uh, that was banned from the radio was a 1973 song called Rated X. This was a song she wrote about the difficulties of being a divorced woman in America and the hard positions it puts you in. And how women and men start to see you very differently if you are suddenly single and have been married before. In one of my favorite lines from the song, she says, The women all look at you like you're bad, and the men all hope you are. And she talks about how she's like, you know, all of your friends, you know, their husbands start to be like, you're looking really good now. Basically saying like, yeah, your friend's husbands will start to hit on you because they hope you're rated X and they hope that you'll have an affair with them. Some other parts of the song are, well, us women don't have a chance because if you've been married, you can't have no fun at all. No, you're rated X. No matter what you do, they're going to talk about you. Mm. Basically, just like, yeah, if you're specifically divorced too, she's like people, she talks about how like people know that you've had sex. And so people will try, like, men will hope that you'll have sex with them because, like, now you're rated X. Like, it's, like, this very specific thing that was happening to a lot of women that nobody was talking about. Yeah, it's a really weird thing because, obviously, like, a lot of women were getting married really, really young. So it's very uncomfortable to be with a woman who is not been married because you're going to assume she's a virgin which I know some people have pride in that or whatever but that's I mean divorced women have a hard go at it a really hard go at it yeah and divorced men don't have that same thing yeah no they don't and so it's really because about it's that standard that they've mm-hmm. had ma- sex before they got married yeah uh, but this wouldn't even come close to her most controversial song, which came out in 1975. Mm. This was called The Pill. This is a song about a woman who finally gets on birth control. And of course, I'm going to read you some of the lyrics because they are amazing. <clears throat> you wined me and dined me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house because now I've got the pill. This old maternity dress I've got is going in the garbage. The clothes I'm wearing from now on won't take up so much yardage. Mini skirts, hot pants, and a few little fancy frills. Yeah, I'm making up for those years since I've got the pill. Yes! <laughs> and then later, 
later in the song, she says, the feeling good comes easy now since I've got the pill. Like, she's talking about the joy of having control over your reproductive system and the joy of having sex. In the song, she's like, yeah, I... In the song, she says, like, now my husband doesn't have to cheat on me because I don't have to tell him no because I'm afraid of getting pregnant. Yeah. Which, that was a huge fucking problem. It's like, she was like, yeah, a lot of women don't have sex with their husbands because then they're going to get pregnant and have all these fucking children. And they don't want them. And they don't want them. Like, <laughs> it's too much. It's just too much. And I love that it was also about, like, now I can have sex for pleasure because I have the pill and I don't have to be worried about getting pregnant all the fucking time, mm. which I think that's the thing about the pill that is so underappreciated is the effect that it had on married women. We all think about, about, about it in, in relation to young single girls who want to have a good time and want to have sex. But for married women, it was also such a godsend because they could actually have sex and not worry about getting pregnant. Like, like have sex with the person they are in a committed relationship like, with. This is a huge fucking deal. Right. But, of course, people uh, did not like this. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and the song was banned. But Loretta Lynn was never, like, canceled or anything like that. Like, people never stopped buying her records because her audience was largely women. Hmm. Women were listening to Loretta Lynn. So she never had women boycotting her songs. It was always the men who ran the radio stations and the men who were booking acts and stuff like that. But women were always buying her songs, buying her records, requesting them on the radio because it spoke to them. Well, and honestly, they don't get it. No. They don't. The boys. The boys. Um, but Loretta was about to be famous for something other than her controversial songs. So back in 1970, Loretta had her biggest hit to date. It was an autobiographical song called The Coal Miner's Daughter. And it was a song about <laughs> her life. Mm. And it went to number one on the country billboard charts and was her first song to chart on the billboard Hot 100. This song was so popular that then they asked her to write a book based on this song. So with this guy, uh, sorry, I should have written his name down. Um, she wrote a best-selling book called The Coal Miner's Daughter in 1976. Uh, and then that got turned into the 1980 Oscar-winning movie, The Coal Miner's Daughter. <laughs> this movie was extremely popular it starred uh, Sissy Spacek, who you might know from the film Carrie. Yes. Um, and Talk Everlasting. <laughs> she played Loretta. And Tommy Lee Jones of MIB fame <laughs> played her husband, right. Joe. Loretta handpicked Sissy to play her. And she even started announcing it before Sissy had even accepted the role. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I'm watching Johnny Carson one night. And there's Loretta being like, yeah, Sissy Spacek is going to play me. And she was like, I don't even know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> she is. <laughs> I love that. Oh, it's great. But once they met, the two of them fell in love. Loretta even likes to say that they were twins in a past life. She goes, I know that we were. And Sissy goes, well, I guess we'll never know. And Loretta goes, we will someday. 
So I'm guessing Loretta knows because she just died last week. Whoa. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and Loretta had a hand in this whole movie because she wanted it to be as close to her real life as possible, which is probably why it struck home for so many people and became such a big hit. Like I watched the trailer for the movie and then did my research. And I was like, I thought that the things in the trailer, I never, never seen the movie, but I was like, I thought the things in the trailer like made up, but every detail of it, like Doolittle had like a Jeep that he, you know, went around town in. And like, that was true. They it's had pictures thing, of it's the a Jeep. Je- sorry, it's a Jeep thing. It's a Jeep thing. The Jeep wave. Everybody knows Ooh. it. Everybody loves it. <laughs> so Give me a duck baby. <laughs> but like, it was not only cool that they had made a bio- biographical movie about a woman in the, you know, in 1980, but also that like they would trust her to have all this creative control over it. Like it was a very, very accurate. <laughs> We're having a hard time with that today. This is in 1980. So the movie won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. Woo! It received seven Oscar nominations, but only won one. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and it was Sissy Spacek for Best Actress. Oh! The movie skyrocketed her to a level of fame that was unprecedented for a country music artist. Normally, they're kind of pushed off to the side. Like, Miranda Lambert is probably super big to country music fans, but, like, we kind of care. People don't really. Sometimes we care. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't. Well, she used to be dating the guy that's now. Or she used to be married to the guy that's oh. now married to Gwen Stefani. Yes, Blake <laughs> Shelton. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like to okay. us, it just doesn't matter. It, yeah. To, to the Sorry, rest Miranda. of us. <laughs> I, so if you don't know, guys, if you don't live in America, the large majority of the two coasts mm-hmm. don't give a shit about what's happening in country music. No. It is literally between the two mountain ranges that anybody cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, love you Carrie Underwood <laughs> so <laughs> another funny uh, side effect of this movie was so not only made Loretta very very famous in like regular pop culture sorry to call it that but her husband do also became quite famous as a piece of shit and according to Loretta's children women would go up to him and be like, I should slap you for what you did to Loretta. She was such a sweet little girl. How could you do that? And he's like, ah. but also like he did do that. The movie did not exaggerate. <laughs> he did do those things. It's a very Jake Gyllenhaal taking Taylor Swift scarf situation. Sure. I don't know anything about that. He needs and witness I protection. Talk about it in Patreon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you're talking about oh my god um but that's the whole interesting thing about this whole time period with the movie because like she made a biopic of her life but she was basically the age that she was when the movie ended so the movie has to end in a positive way so it ends with her and Doolittle like riding off into the sunset all happy and forgiving each other and everything and she was like I was actually having a really rough time when, like, the movie ended. You know, for one, that awful lawsuit with the Wilbur brothers was finally going to trial. Uh, It was really hard for her. She hated having to testify against these men that she considered family, and it ruined some relationships in her life. You know, but ultimately she won the case, which was great. Um, But then in 1984, another tragedy struck. Her firstborn child, her son Jack, was crossing a river on a horse 
and the river swelled. He got knocked off. We don't really know what happened, and he drowned. And this was another thing. The night that he died, Loretta was in the hospital across the country, and she was with another one of her children, and she was like, something's happened to Jack. We need to check on him. And they're like, no, Jack's fine. Like, what are you talking about? He's just home at the ranch with dad. And she goes, something's happened. And he, she, she's got some premonition stuff going on. She's a real silver Trelawney. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he did die that night. And Loretta really never got over this. And she even maintained for a long time, she goes, you know, he wouldn't have died just like that. Like, someone must have attacked him and threw him into the river. But there's really no evidence of that. I think she was just grieving really fucking hard. Yeah. Then her mother died of lung cancer, and Loretta was touring so much that she ended up collapsing from exhaustion. She's having a lot of medical problems. And then Dew started having a lot of medical problems. He's having many strokes because after Jack died, like he was always an alcoholic, but now he is literally just drinking morning till night. And yeah, when you lose a kid, there's no, there's a lot of, it's hard to come it's back. It's really hard. And so he's having a lot of strokes. He, he had, I think his son said he had 17 to 20 mini strokes in a very short period of time. Wow. And then he was diagnosed with diabetes. This is when Loretta finally puts her career on hold. She stops singing and she goes home to take care of her husband because she loved him so much i hate him and he required a lot of care during his last few years he ended up losing both of his legs to diabetes and she stayed right by his side every step of the way that might seem weird for her her to have these strong feelings for a man that treated her like shit but i'll use a quote from her to explain it i married do when i was a child and he was my life from that day on but as important as my youth and upbringing was, there's something else that made me stick to do. He thought I was something special, more special than anyone else in the world, and he never let me forget it. That belief would be hard to shove out the door. Do was my security, my safety net, and just remember, I'm explaining, not excusing. Do was a good man and a hard worker, but he was an alcoholic and it affected our marriage all the way through. She's always described it as a hard, hard love story, but it was a love story to her. And on August 26th, 1996, he died in Loretta's arms. She said, I told him it would be okay. Just walk around the corner. I'll be okay. And he took his last breath. And the, the deaths didn't stop after that. She soon lost her brother, she lost her longtime producer, her close friend Tammy, and her old singing partner Conway Twitty. It was a lot going on That's in a lot the late nineties for her. A few years after Dew's death, she started to emerge again and kind of pick up the pieces. In two thousand, she recorded an album called Still Country, and her single Country in My Jeans was on the country billboard charts once again. In two thousand four, she released an album called Van Leer Rose. This was produced by Jack White of the White Stripes. <laughs> he also did guitar and backup vocals for the album. I would highly recommend their duet, uh, Portland, that they did for the album. It's 
so good. It's so good. And that one country album of the year at the Grammys that year. <laughs> I of course. mean, come on, it's 2004 and she's still winning Grammys for new music. <laughs> and Jack White, Jack White was like, it was unreal. He goes, I, he goes, you know, Meg and I, we used to listen to Loretta Lynn all the time mm-hmm. in the tour bus. Right. And so on a whim, we just kind of dedicated one of our albums to her because she really was such an influence on us. And someone told Loretta and she goes, come over, I'll cook you dinner. So he goes, she's not going to do that. And then she did. She <laughs> cooked them dinner at her house. And then, you know, she was like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing another album. And he was like, well, if you need a producer, like I'll do it. And he was like, I said it. Didn't really think that anything would come from it. And then I got a call. Loretta wants you to produce her next album. <laughs> and he goes, and I went to her and he goes, she had piles and piles of songs that she'd written over the years. She just picked a couple and was like, I guess these ones will be fine. He goes, I can't imagine what we would have come up with if we'd actually looked through the songs and like picked them <laughs> purposefully because they were all so good. That's amazing. So I just can't imagine that kind of talent. Like yeah. that song, Portland, she had written like people who know the song, like she wrote that so long before they did this mm-hmm. and just kind of picked it up out of a pile. Unreal. We'll do this one. Yeah. She continued to release music in 2016. She released Full Circle. Uh, the album debuted at number 19 on the Billboard Hot one, Hot 200, sorry, mm. and went on to become Lynn's 40th album to make the top 10 on Billboard's best-selling country chart. On March 19th, 2021, Lynn released her 50th studio album called Still Woman Enough. Mm. And I can say that she sounds amazing from the beginning of her career down to her last known recordings. She won so many awards in her lifetime, including a Kennedy honor, a presidential medal of freedom. She has a rose named after her, a place in the country music and songwriters hall of fame, tons and tons of Grammys. She was the first female country artist to receive a star on the Hollywood walk of fame in 1977 she is officially the most awarded woman in country music. I knew she had a lot of awards. Yep. <laughs> and I don't think anyone will take that from her. No. I think she will keep that title. She has like six decades worth of awards yeah. at this point. That's too much. Unreal. Last week, I started seeing posts on Instagram about Loretta Lynn passing away. She had died on October 4th, 2022 at the age of 90. The name rung a bell, but I really didn't know who she was or why she was important. Then I decided to cover her life story this week, and I'm so glad I did. She was not only a strong feminist voice in early country music, but she was a kind and loving person. And I think the most impressive thing about her is that she never wanted to be remembered as the queen of country or a best-selling author or a lifetime Grand Ole Opry member or even the most awarded woman in country music. She will always be remembered as the coal miner's daughter who was born in a cabin on a hill in Butcher Holler. And that's Loretta Lynn. That's amazing. <laughs> what a good story. I cried so much doing this research because she is one of the most genuine people yeah, she's I very, have ever she seen. She seems very, very sweet. So good. All right. Are we ready to do horoscopes? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, 
as we discussed, their <laughs> birthdays are super close. They're so both close. Aries. So I, I'm actually really loving this season for this. Yes. I think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, so Dolores Huerta was born on April 10th, 1930. So she is an Aries, just like my baby. <laughs> um, baby as in husband, not as in child. <laughs> so it says, on this date, you're taking the bull by the horn. So it's not easy for you to turn control over to someone else you live for the next challenge your competitive streak as an Aries can be a little wicked as well it is best to let you set your own rules it's more peaceful that way interesting that seems to fit so well it's (laughs) exactly who she is and I'm really proud of her for that yeah like I'm I think she's an amazing woman that I wish was not cut from the curriculum of the United States (laughs) okay tell me about Loretta okay so she was born on April 14th 1932 she is also an Aries and the horoscope I found was Flexibility is all today, so don't refuse to change your mind or feel that you should stand your ground to prove a point. If you take a more relaxed approach, you could see your situation from another angle and decide to change your plans. So don't commit yourself to anything or anyone until you've had time to think. Shut (laughs) up. I mean, two years and four days later, and they fit exactly. exactly their person. (laughs) And it's funny, too, because... Unbelievable. They were also very different horoscopes from each other. Yeah. Like, and I also think that it's interesting because Loretta's seems like kind of a warning of, like, don't pick your partner too quickly, and that's exactly what she did. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about these two women in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call... Just the two of us. Okay. So they're both surrounded by some very famous people. Yeah. Very famous people. It's funny. That was, yeah, absolutely. I just kept thinking, like, everybody that we mentioned in both of their stories has their own namesake of fame. So it's surprising to have these people in these circles that we know a little bit less about. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, that their uh, lives and careers were similar to, like, other people like Dolores's was similar to like other civil rights leaders that are much more famous than her. She did just as much work as like other people who are more famous Mm. than her. Mm -hmm. Loretta Lynn, her life is almost identical to Dolly Parton's, which I found unreal. Yeah. And like Dolly Parton is namesake everywhere. Yeah. And like, but they had such similar lives. And so it's interesting to me that like they're, surrounded by other famous people in their field but they are accredited less often of course like i'm saying that about loretta because i didn't know who she was i think i think (laughs) i think the same with dolores huerta like that she is like less known and i mean it has a lot to do i mean I mean, I know Dolly Parton also grew up kind of poor, kind of white trash. Like, we covered her story. But there is this, I am a second-generation Mexican, you know, American. And this, I grew up poor white trash and ended up in Washington State where it's like, I don't know. There's no leg up for these ladies. They yeah. built they built the stairs while they were climbing them. Yeah. 
Well, and I think it's interesting that they both came from this very distinct culture. You know, Ugh, Dolores yes, is yes. Hispanic. She's specifically Mexican. And uh, Loretta is, she's Appalachian. Okay. I'm just going to fucking say it. Put it she's out there. Appalachian. She is Kentucky. They're a sexy people. White trash. And people think that they are dumb. Yeah, they do. Oh, yeah. They totally underestimate them. You know, I when I was listening to the Dolly Parton NPR podcast, like I heard a lot of young girls who were like, yeah, I had to go to a voice coach to get rid of my Southern accent because people thought I was stupid. And it lowered my chances of getting into like Harvard Law School and like other like places that I wanted to go. They're like, I felt like I had to reject this identity of mine because when people hear my accent, they think I'm fucking dumb. Which and is I also think the same as with Dolores. I think it's also crazy because men from the South have the, a very distinct like senator accent. Like I know. it's a very interesting draw mm-hmm. that like white men have when they're a senator from the South. That you're like, oh, like they, Frank Underwood, very Frank Underwood. Mm-hmm. Like they know what they're talking about. And I think a very similar thing is happening to Dolores. Like. Cesar Chavez is so well-respected, and she's seen as a sidekick when she's not a sidekick. And even he knows she's not a sidekick. He's like, she is the heart of this organization, and I'm the voice. And it's not that Cesar Chavez didn't do anything. He's a labor organizer on Mm -hmm. his own right. But so is she. Yeah. And I think that that's what was happening to Loretta Lynn. It's like, I am also a country star. Yeah, exactly. And... I think it's interesting, too, that they both use their platform and their position to advocate for blue-collar working people. They both grew up in mining towns. Oh, yeah. They had dads that worked really fucking hard. Mm -hmm. And then they had daughters who worked hard to get them more respect. Yeah. It's not even really, like, more money, more this, more that. It was like... You need to respect these fucking people because they do work really hard and they deserve much better than you're giving them. Like they're not stupid. They're not hicks. They're not, you know, trash that we can put pesticides on and then we don't care if they live or die. Like they're human beings and with families and they deserve more than what you're giving them. And it's also interesting that they both struggled with the very real mom guilt of I can't grab my career by the horns because if I do that, then I am leaving behind these children that I've birthed. Whereas if any man was to do that, no male activists are asked where their kids are. No. No male country singers are asked what's happening with your children. I mean, Mitt Romney had a thousand children and nobody was like, well, who's taking care of them? Mm -hmm. They were both asked that question constantly. And there was also that feeling of like, our mom didn't belong to us, of like, she belonged to her job, to her fans, to her career, to her organization and to her purpose, to to her her cause, to her purpose. And it sucks that women are not, women especially women with children are not allowed to have a purpose because you're seen as abandoning your family. Mm. And like, it is such a frustrating double standard of like, there is so much focus put on like, 
well, who's taking care of your kids? You know, and they both had that because they both had a lot of kids, which is something mm-hmm. that Dolly Parton never had to deal with. Right. She didn't have kids. Mm-hmm. She had a lot of siblings that she took care of. Yeah, but not a lot but of kids. They both had a lot of kids. And I also think that contraception was a very interesting thing in both of their I stories. I loved it. I know that the Catholic Hispanic community really struggles yeah and i think that it was important that i mean in the documentary gloria steinem is so honest and so is dolores because she's in it too talking about how it was hard at first to connect her movement with this women's rights movement because she felt kind of personally against it and then realized that what she wanted was to have her babies and what other people want is maybe to not have babies yeah and that's fine and it's interesting too because it wasn't even like a it was against what they believed personally exactly it was that it was against their culture Mm. i think that your culture can influence what you think personally but then you can also step away from it but it's hard to and both of them made the hard choice to step away from their culture yeah like i think it was very difficult for both of them to be like Oh, yeah, like, this is okay. And Loretta's really came from, I think Dolores had to understand other women's experience. Loretta just knew her own experience. And she's like, yeah, if I had contraception <laughs> when I was a new new mother, like a new wife, this she would have been great. I absolutely wouldn't have had all these fucking kids. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like breaking away from this thing that is very ingrained in you that you're also very proud of Mm. you know because these are two cultures that a lot of people like to throw out with the bathwater like throw the baby out with the bathwater whatever Mm -hmm. but also it's like no no like we don't have to throw the whole thing out just because my culture is against contraception or abortion or whatever yeah we can appreciate that as a separate entity but also make our own decisions and that's why it is so important to keep the laws (laughs) open for like open for everybody to make their own choices right oh okay yeah i don't i don't know i just (sighs) felt like these two women were growing up and full teenagers in world war ii america mm-hmm. and i don't think we talk about women like them in world war ii america we talk about yeah. the rosie the riveters we talk about the uncle sam's we talk about victory gardens but there is so much going on in this country and these women are direct like direct warriors and yeah. like i mean obviously dolores as somebody, one of the people interviewed said she was the first general I followed into battle. Mm. And it's just like, yeah, you know what? She was a warrior on the front lines of American life. And Loretta Lynn was teaching us every day what it's like to be hit, to, to be safe, to learn how to like control your own career, to like say no to music industries that don't, I don't know. I just think they both were really fighting battles that we don't associate with American culture when really they're so deeply ingrained in American culture. Yeah. And trying to make more people a part of American culture. Yeah. Like that's the thing that really impresses me about both of them is that they weren't, they were just trying to say like, these people matter as well. They weren't trying to say Mm. we only matter. You know, they're trying to say like, Hey, pay attention to these people. Like Loretta Lynn has a great song that I didn't talk about in the story, but Mm. I, listen to on the way here actually 
where it's called Another on the Way. Mm. And she is talking about some real women. She goes, you know, this person is out here making movies, starring her in her next thing. These women are in New York. These women are in Paris, living their lives. And she goes, and I'm home in, like, Kentucky with a bunch of screaming kids and dogs and another on the way. Mm. But the song doesn't talk shit about the other women or her. She goes, this is just, like, the whole song is about, this is just the reality. Some women are off doing their thing, and I'm here doing my thing. But don't forget that there are people doing both, and that both are okay. Yeah. You know, and, like, I was listening to that song on the way here, and I hadn't come across it in my research. Mm. And country music is also really good, because you can really hear the lyrics. Oh, yeah. And they tell (laughs) such a vivid story. Story. It's a story. And... They don't exactly, ha- they have a, a repeating theme, but not exactly a chorus, uh-huh. you know? So yeah, it's I like agree. things change throughout the song. And I just, I loved it because I think it's easy for women to talk shit about other women and be like, well, they're not doing the same thing that I am doing. So like, fuck them. And like, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing what I'm doing. And I think Loretta was like, there's room for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to stay home and have a ton of babies, good for you if you want to get on birth control and not have six kids or 11 that's okay too Mm -hmm. and that's what dolores is trying to do she's like people just need more opportunities for what their life is oh yeah you know and i don't know and i think it's cool that they both have daughters taking on their work and leading on their legacy like Basically, all of Loretta's daughters and granddaughters are fucking country musicians. <laughs> and I mean, all of Dolores's children are working yeah. in the field. Some of them are like in the state senate. Like, it's a big deal. And I, I liked earlier that you said like it's so much more than just mattering. Like, one of my favorite things about the Black Lives Matter movement is the people that put up the posts that say "matter is the minimum." Yeah, and I'm like, that's yeah. exactly right. The fact that people yeah. matter—that's the minimum. Yeah. Like, these people, more than matter, they are so much a part of culture. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm mm. really excited. Are you ready to toast? I am. Uh, who would you like to toast this evening? So, I want to toast the all of the people of color. We used this episode because it was Dolores Huerta's um, vernacular, black and brown people in the United States. All the people of color in the United States who have made a massive impact Mm -hmm. and been wiped from history. And that's everybody from people who worked fields and were buried in unmarked graves because they died enslaved in this country all the way to people who were having sex with our presidents and being ignored like Mm -hmm. Sally Hemings all the way to people like, you know, Dolores Huerta, who is a big move maker and is purposely cut out of our country because she's intimidating. Yeah. So to the mm. to the erase. Cheers. Cheers. Who do you want to toast? I am going to toast Loretta for speaking up for women who felt ignored. Mm. Women who had drunk husbands, women who were divorced, who were poor single mothers, women who were happy to be on birth control, especially in the world of country music, you know, those women can often be drowned out and canceled and not put on the radio and get banned from radio stations like Loretta was. Yeah. And 
I just really appreciate her for talking, giving a voice to women in her community who felt very ignored. Very cool. So cheers to her. Mm. Cheers, cheers, Loretta. Mm. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay, so this is going to be a little wild. I'm going to promote <laughs> my daughter. Okay. So we have, as a full family, been doing Duolingo for hundreds and hundreds of days. And we mm-hmm. all have this amazing streak going, this, that, and the other. But she's in middle school. She lost her phone. It got uncharged. We had to plug it in. It had to this. It had to that. There's so much going on. She's got sports practice and school and all these things. And one night she got on her phone and just like, the shriek from her bedroom was gut-wrenching. So I run in, and I'm like, what's wrong? And she was like, I lost my Duolingo streak. And I break down. Like, I'm crying. I'm upset. I get online. I find out, okay, you can buy a new streak saver if it's one day after this, this, that, and the other. Me and producer are, like, doing everything we can. Comes down to it that it can't be saved. The streak can't be saved. And... We just sat there and we said, I mean, I'm a mess. Because if that happened to me, I would quit. But um, we were like, you have a choice right now. You can say that all the Spanish you learned for the last 215 days means nothing. Or you can keep going and the number doesn't matter. And she chose to keep going. Mm, so hard to do. It's so hard to do. And she's a child. And I am, like, really proud of her. Yeah. And I just, the other day, she sent me a notification that said, I've finished seven days. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> I just, like, I just, like, wanted to cry because I just think that I'm not promoting her right now. I'm, like, I think sometimes if you forget to work out for a day or, like, if you break your diet or, like, if your goal was to journal every day for 100 days and you don't do it, if you don't do it one day, you think your goal's over. And it's not. Everything you did before that still matters. So I'm just promoting the fact that, like, it's okay to fail sometimes and it still matters. Everything you did before failing is still important. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't know what else to say about that. I just, it really inspired me this week. Yeah. How great she is. That's very inspiring. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I am going to promote. Loretta Lynn's music, obviously. Oh! It's so good. Source material, I baby. Was shocked. Mm-hmm. I just like, didn't. Her songs are so catchy. She has yes. such a natural voice. And it was also so nice because we cover a lot of musicians who, through whatever happens in their life, their voice gets deteriorated. It's not as good. And like she just maintained that voice and that joy. Like, I saw her interviewed a lot. <laughs> From 2003 to 2020. And she doesn't have a resting, smiling face. Mm. But when she is singing, she is smiling so fucking hard the entire time. I love Um, that. And there was also another piece of music that I found this week that I really loved. uh, The band Weezer. (laughs) Okay. What is it? I love Weezer. I love Weezer so much. They are doing a new project called Seasons. S-Z. NZ. Okay, calm they down. are releasing a new album on the first day of every season. They've been doing this all year and we didn't know. <laughs> so right now, 
spring, summer, and fall are out. I've listened to spring and fall. So we're waiting for winter now. We're waiting for winter. Okay, Weezer, calm down. It It is so catchy and good. I genuinely liked it. And it's nice because each seasonal album is only seven songs, so it doesn't feel overwhelming. Mm. And it takes you back. It sounds like Weezer. It feels like Weezer. It's so good. So I'm also just going to recommend that too because i have been listening to a lot of new music this week which is uh not my go-to you know uh-huh. i like to listen to the classics in right my right so it's been nice expanding so loretta lynn and weezer <laughs> listen to them Perfect. and the white stripes they're good too yeah they're great all right well thank you all so much for listening join us on patreon apparently Please we're gonna do. talk about taylor swift's all too well and jake gyllenhaal yes and cheating and all sorts of things. I so mean, we're we gonna might just have to talk about Taylor Swift. I think it's gonna be crazy. It's gonna I think be. We good. might watch the music video. Have you seen the music video? No. <gasps> okay, we're gonna have to watch it and comment during. I feel bad. I don't know anything about Taylor Swift. Oh my shit. So, She's great. Okay, we'll get into we'll, it. Well, it's gonna be fun. So if you like Taylor Swift and you want to join in in our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, join us on Patreon for as little little, little as a dollar a month. One dollar. Support the show. Buy us more ginger beer, more copper mugs, um, and. <laughs> help keep the show going any little bit helps it's so wonderful we're almost to 200 episodes and it's because of our patreon members it truly is we would have given up a long time ago if it wasn't for them yeah we like you um and we also want you to rate and review us on apple podcasts you know we haven't gotten a review in a while so anything would be great um and follow us on all the social medias we post the cocktail recipes every tuesday and you can take a quiz to see who made what cocktail so if you really feel like you know us, take we'll the see. quiz. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but mostly we want you to never, ever forget that well-behaved women have a favorite spatula. Yes. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.